Okay, let's turn our attention then to 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'll be reading the entire chapter. Here once again, the very Word of God. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me, and, I call, and he called to me, and I answered, here I, am, here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they, are not, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. 
O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, as we begin in this passage to understand the reign of David as king over Israel, how that responsibility passed from Saul to him. We pray that we would look carefully into your word and be goaded by it to love and good works. That we would understand David's commitment to you. That he was a man after your own heart. Nevertheless, he was a man. Father, we pray that as we look into this first chapter that we would be faithful to mine the depths of the wisdom that's found here, that it would become part of our lives and our practice before You, that we would bring honor to Your name, that we would show honor to those who are anointed by You, and that we would do so with steadfastness. Bless now the preaching and the reading of Your Word. May it goad us to love and good works. And we ask this in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. Well, for the benefit of our visitors, last week I did a, uh, the entire sermon was an introduction to Second Samuel. Unfortunately, uh, we won't have the benefit of some of the information that was shared then. However, we will be going through a, a brief summary of First Samuel uh, that might be helpful as we begin the lesson today. As we begin here in chapter 1, it will likely be helpful to go over that overview of 1 Samuel because it gives us the context for our text today. 1 Samuel begins with the account of Samuel's birth and his mother's promise to devote her miracle child to God, his name being Samuel, he being the author of these books. 1 Samuel is primarily a book about transitions in Israel. The last two judges, Eli and Samuel, are the subject matter of the early chapters. Then, the remainder of the book is about Israel's first king, Saul, and the anointing of Israel's second king, David. The people of God, Israel, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, wanted a king over Israel like the other nations, the Scriptures tell us. This is a bit of an irony in this circumstance. The name Israel means he who struggles with God. The high priest and the judge, Samuel, warns Israel that what they desire is not a good thing. In other words, you're struggling with God. God Himself wants to be your king. And yet they would desire a human king instead of the king of heaven and earth. The Israelites persist in their desire to have an earthly king, and God gives them over to their desires. Therein is a very important lesson for us. The Scriptures teach us when we oppose God and His will, 
Eventually, He will give us over to our own desires. Well, God providentially selects Saul, a reluctant giant of a man, to be the king over Israel, and he is anointed by Saul to be king at the command of God. At that moment, the leadership of Israel was transformed from a priestly lineage to a warring lineage. And that transition would prove to be a millstone around the neck of Israel. Israel's new king, Saul, would not be known for his faithfulness toward God, but for his impatient unfaithfulness toward God. Saul would assume unto himself the office of a priest by sacrificing unto the Lord without authority or permission from God. He would make a rash oath that would nearly cost the life of his son Jonathan, and he would consult a medium, a witch, instead of trusting in the Lord in Israel's time of need. And all of, all of this would kindle God's anger against Saul to the point that God would withdraw his blessing and the kingship lineage to the house of Saul. Samuel then would be directed by God to anoint a second man, king over Israel, while Saul was still on the throne. A son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, obscure, very obscure, a shepherd boy. He was chosen, and his name, David. David was anointed by Samuel in approximately 1065 A.D., some five years into Saul's reign. So David is anointed king five years into Saul's reign. Keep that in mind. Much of the remainder of 1 Samuel is an account of Saul seeking to take David's life because of envy. Because of envy. God had withdrawn his blessing from Saul and given it to David, and Saul knew this and was envious. Envy is an insidious form of jealousy. A man who is jealous says in his heart, I want what the other person has. I want what that man has. That's jealousy. But the envious man says in his heart, I want what what that other man has, but because I can't have it, I don't want him to have it either. Therefore, I will destroy him. That's the nature of envy. It is jealousy in its mature form. Now, 2 Samuel begins with Saul's death and David's first kingly act. Though David has not yet taken the throne of Israel, it is estimated that some 10 to 15 years have passed since David was anointed by Samuel, but he is yet to serve as king over Israel. He has God's appointment, his anointing, but he must wait 10 to 15 years before he takes the throne of Israel. And this brings me back to Psalm 16. The lot to me that fell is beautiful and fair. The heritage in which I dwell is good beyond compare. I praise the Lord above, whose counsel guides aright. My heart instructs me in his love in seasons of the night. David lived ten years in a season of nighttime, running from the spear of Saul, who on more than one occasion threw that spear at David in his presence. 
David could have taken Saul's life on several occasions, but he refused to do it for one simple reason. Saul was God's anointed. Saul was God's chosen man. Our text begins with two great battles having taken place. David and his small band of warriors had pursued the Amalekites, having utterly destroyed them. Meanwhile, Saul was engaged in a battle with the Philistines. David prevailed, but Saul was defeated, and in his defeat, Saul was wounded by Philistine archers. It was quite certain that Saul would not be able to escape the pursuing Philistine army, so he had commanded his armor-bearer to kill him. All of this appears in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. The armor-bearer refused, and so Saul fell on his own sword. Here there seems to be an apparent conflict between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. At the end of 1 Samuel, there is no mention of the Amalekite happening on the scene to finally finish off Saul. Yet here in 2 Samuel 1, an Amalekite appears while Saul is perishing and he claims to inflict the mortal wound at the request of Saul. Now this may not seem to be a very important account of the demise of Saul, but it has an important connection to 1 Samuel 15 and Exodus 17. In Exodus, uh, in Exodus, or excuse me, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was told through Samuel to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And this is the account of that conflict from chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he, when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That is profound judgment. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Hivalah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good, and were unwilling to, unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. This is an interesting account of Saul's defeat of the Amalekites, right after he had been anointed king of Israel. 
Saul shows concern for the Kenites, who had aided God's people when they fled Egypt. The Kenites were spared as Saul came against the Amalekites. Why is this so very important? Well, the answer is rooted in history, the history of Israel. Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, the son of Esau. We read about that earlier today. Thank you, Shay, for that labor of love going through all those names from Genesis. But that chapter was the genealogy of Esau. And in that chapter, Esau's grandson, Amalek, is named. And it's his descendants that Saul was to go against in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel and utterly destroy and to leave nothing. Generally, when God gave his people charge to overthrow a people, often they would spare the women and children and often would spare the means of life, the, the, uh, uh, the animals that were, remained. They were to be spared so that the women and children had something to live off of. The Amalekites were different. They were not to be spared at all, none of them. And nothing that they owned was to be spared. Yet Saul acts on his own authority. Not only does he leave King Agag, whose, whose name means violence, by the way. That's what Agag means, violence. He, he spared a violent king as well as much, as much of the plunder of the Amalekites. So why is this so important? Again, this answer is rooted in history. Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, the son of Esau. It was his descendants that fought against Israel when Moses went up to the top of a hill in Rephidim and held his staff up. And when his staff was held up, the Israelites prevailed. And when his staff was lowered, the Amalekites prevailed. Following that battle, we read in Exodus 17 that God declared that he would, quote, utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. But this would take place after generation upon generation of warring. It was Saul who was given the opportunity to be God's agent of totally destroying the Amalekites. But in his greed, he refused to do so and not keep the command of God. Agag was not destroyed, the king, and the possessions of the Amalekites were spread among the people. Saul was indeed a king like the kings of other nations. The kings of other nations were greedy, as was Saul. Though he feigned to do the will of God, meaning he got close to it, he, he seemingly always fell short, Saul did. Though he stayed his hand against the Kenites, he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites as God had commanded him. Brethren, this brings us to a very important lesson. Partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. Some of you parents are shaking your heads like this because you've probably told that to your children already. Partial obedience is not obedience. And Saul's partial obedience 
brought about his own demise. For it was an Amalekite who put him to death. David, on the other hand, acknowledged the absolute authority of God, both in his anointing of Saul as king and the decree of God against the Amalekites. Here, an unnamed Amalekite presumes to slay God's anointed in a mercy killing. That's what it looks like, right? I mean, as you read the story, you kind of wonder, David, weren't you a little harsh there in putting this Amalekite to death? Saul was on a Saul was about to die anyway, and he didn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines. The Amalekite saved him from that. Isn't that like a mercy killing? Did it make you a little uncomfortable when I first read that? David, wasn't that a bit harsh? I suspect, though the text doesn't say, that the Amalekite was trying to curry favor with conquering David by taking King Saul's crown and armband to David. It's been three days now since the Amalekites were destroyed, and this Amalekite, who was still back where the Philistines were, I suspect had some notion of what happened to his kin. They're all dead. And so he's taking the crown of Saul and the armband of Saul to David in hopes that there might be mercy there. There might be mercy. David makes a judicial decision. This is the first kingly act that David does. He is now the king of Israel, though he is not yet on the throne, so to speak. The people have not acknowledged his kingship. God has. He now makes a kingly decision. He judges the Amalekite, the man who should not even exist based upon 1 Samuel chapter 15. Execute the Amalekite, he says. He has raised his hand against the anointed of God. No man does that and lives. This is David's first kingly act. David asserts the authority of God and acts upon it. Not only has the Amalekite taken the life of the anointed of God, he should have been destroyed in 1 Samuel 15. This reminds me of another in the lineage of David. One who came to do the will of the Father. That's what David was acting out. The will of the Father was to destroy the Amalekites. That's the will of the Father. And because one of them had lived, he became the demise of Saul who refused to do the will of the Father. So David, David, who has already destroyed the Amalekite people, will now destroy the last Amalekite in keeping the will of the Father. What about our Lord Jesus Christ? Did He not come to do the will of the Father? It was not His own will that He came to do, He said over and over, but to do the will of the Father. When God acts in anointing or decreeing something, we are to render obedience. And remember I said earlier, partial obedience is not obedience. As hard as it may be to act out the obedience of God, that is the thing that God delights in. And that is the thing that he blesses. Not partial obedience, 
not fainting toward obedience, but rendering actual obedience. Rendering actual obedience. What does that word render mean? Well, it means to distill down to its essence. Lady, you know what, ladies, you know what rendering is in the kitchen, don't you? You do that, don't you? You put uh, broth in a, in a pot, add heat, let the, the moisture evaporate, and then you render down to the essence of the thing, right? Or it might be, it might be a compote of some sort. But you're rendering something. You're applying heat to something until the essence is left. And that's it. The essence is left. That is what David has done. He knows the promises of God. He knows that in the early years of Saul's reign, Saul failed to do the will of the Lord regarding the Amalekites. And God has put him through the heat of the battle and rendered the essence before him a single Amalekite who's left. Now the question is, will David, in his first kingly act, render obedience? I believe he did. Now this example of obedience is hard for us to embrace. But we must understand that obedience to God impacts both life and death. Obedience to God impacts life and death. We don't have commands from God like that of Saul and David to utterly destroy nations. We don't get those commands from God. Oh, wait a minute. Or do we? Or do we? Are we to subdue the nations for God? Are we to go to the ends of the earth and disciple the nations for the kingdom of God? Bringing them into subjection to the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the One who sits on the throne of David? Is that not our call? Is that not rendering obedience to the Savior, the Anointed One? The one who gave his life to redeem the nations. Saul and David were called to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Whose kingdom are we to utterly destroy? Will the gates of hell prevail against the church? Not one bit. Never. Turn with me to Luke 11. One of my all-time favorite passages in all the Scripture. Of course, I say that about a lot of passages, so that's probably a good thing. In Luke 11, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. We know who he is, right? Satan himself. The prince of darkness. He's, he's accused of doing that. Jesus responds to that, beginning in verse 17, chapter 11 of Luke. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now he's alluding to the fact that that can't possibly be because Satan would be fighting against himself, he and his minions, and that his house would never stand that way. Why would he even think of such a thing? Verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did Jesus cast out demons? Yes. By whose finger did he use? Did he not say, I've come to do the will of the Father? He didn't do it by Beelzebub. He did it by the will of the Father. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now listen. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Who's the strong man in this parable? It's Satan. And who's the stronger man who binds him and pillages his house? None other than Jesus Christ our Lord. We live in an age where we have an opportunity to shine brightly in profound darkness. That's what David did. Did you notice in our passage today that when he found out that Saul had been killed, that Jonathan had been killed, he tears his clothes asunder and begins lamenting the loss of the anointed one of God. And notice that his men did the same thing. On two occasions previously, David had the ability to take the life of Saul, and he didn't do it. And his men pleaded with him, do it. This is your opportunity. You've been anointed king. Take his life, and you will be lifted up. And what did David say? I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I will not do it. And now here, David shows that he will submit to the sovereign will of God regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. He hasn't put his hand against the Lord's anointed. And his men have finally understood what that means. His men have finally understood what that means. There are some elders in our church today. I've got a message to you today. We have to act in obedience as an example to your flocks. Just as David taught his men to honor the anointed of the Lord, we have to teach our people to do the same. It's incumbent upon us. And even if we have to live in exile for 10 or 15 years as David did, with the enemy hot on our heels, we need to trust as David did and be lifted up as David was to his kingly position and as our Savior did in His obedience to the Father, 
ascending to the right hand of God till his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. We have great hope. The stronger man has subdued the strong man. He's tied him up and we're pillaging his kingdom. That's what's happening right now. We can't lose heart. We cannot grow faint. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And the nations of the world will be subdued. That's the promise of the gospel and the hope of our salvation. And we cannot lose heart. We must be strong, vigilant, obedient, and not partial obedience, full obedience. That God's name may be glorified on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray together.